Welcome to Launched. I'm Charlie Chapman, and today I'm super excited to be joined by the writer, conference speaker, and indie creator of the We Read 2 app, Kaya Thomas. Kaya, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Charlie. I'm excited to be on the podcast. Yeah, this is this is really cool. Um, so to start out all the shows, uh, I'm going to launch with a icebreaker question just to kind of immediately break down the, uh, the tone and get it conversational. So uh, my question for you is, what is your guilty pleasure food? Oh, my gosh. Um, my guilty pleasure food probably has to be mac and cheese. Mm. <laughs> I love cheese. So like anything with lots of cheese, scalloped potatoes, mac and cheese, like, yes. <laughs> now, so we just had a uh, uh, American Thanksgiving here just a couple of weeks ago. Do you do mac and cheese for Thanksgiving? I have ha- made mac and cheese for Thanksgiving. Um, this Thanksgiving, actually, I wasn't in the states, so I, oh. <laughs> I, d- I actually didn't have a traditional, like you know, huge Thanksgiving meal. But usually, yes, I have made mac and cheese for Thanksgiving. That was just recently introduced to our Thanksgiving by a uh, newcomer to the family through uh, soon-to-be marriage, actually. And so that was like a huge hit. And I think from now on, we'll always be part of our Thanksgiving. (laughs) Nice. Um, So let's go ahead and get to it. So before we get into uh, the stuff that you're doing now, which is all very exciting, I just kind of want to set the tone for who you are. So let's just start out with where are you from? I'm from New York, specifically Staten Island and Harlem, New York. Okay. And then uh, you grew up there and then now you're out in California, right? Yep, yep. So I grew up there. Uh, my my father was in Harlem. My mom was in Staten Island, um, and I moved out to California after I graduated college. Nice. And uh, so you have a college education. Was that in something computer science related or something unrelated? It was computer science. So I got a computer science um, bachelor of the arts from Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. So I I was all over the place, New York, and then up in New Hampshire in the very very cold, and then. Down to California, where it's it's much warmer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like 30 degrees uh, outside here in Missouri right now. I imagine it's not quite that cold uh, in California. No, it is not. Although, I must I must say, after living in California for um, a few years now, I'm, I'm soft when it comes to weather. So, it's like 50 <laughs> degrees. <laughs> it's 50 degrees, and it feels like 30 to me. <laughs> you pull out the big coats. Exactly. Um, and so, then after college, uh, what was your career like? So after I graduated college, um, I worked as a full-time, my first job at a college was a full-time iOS engineer at Slack. Um, and I was there for about two years. And then I moved to Calm, where I've been for like the last eight months. Okay, cool. So that's like a recent thing. Yep. So at some point, uh, I, the date I have is 2014, but I'm not sure how accurate that is. You decided to come out with a uh, indie app on your own called We Read 2. Yeah. And that is, I'll let you explain exactly what it is. Yeah. So 2014 was actually the year that I started learning iOS development. And I did an internship at Time Inc. in New York. And I was working with the Entertainment Weekly magazine to come up with like a prototype app for them for an idea they had to kind of curate 
all articles for a particular TV show. Okay. Yeah. And so around that same time, I was learning iOS development and I just fell in love with it. And I had had an idea um, for something like We Read 2 for a while. And the idea basically stemmed from my own love of reading. I've always loved reading growing up. But when I was a teenager, I started to realize that a lot of the books that I was reading and being given to read didn't have characters that were ever described to be like myself. So I wasn't reading black girl characters in the books um, that I was given and I found in the library. And it really started to affect me. So over time, I really thought I wish there was just a place that I can go to find books like this because I knew that they they had to be out there. I knew, you know, there there were black women who had written books like that. And I'm sure so many authors across, you know, the diversity spectrum who had written books for kids of color. And so, but I didn't know, you know, how to find them or there wasn't one curated place you can go to, to just find all those types of books. So when I was in my internship learning iOS development, I was like, oh, wait, now this is something I can use what I'm learning, right? In my internship and how to make apps and then make my own app. And so I had the idea for Reread 2. And at that summer, summer of 2014, I worked, you know, all that summer, the nights after my internship. And I released Reread 2 on, I think it was August 27th, 2014. So how did you, like, curate that collection? Is that something that you were kind of doing manually? Or is there, like, a database somewhere with metadata that you could sort of at least use to kickstart building up that database? It was a hundred percent manual. Oh man! <laughs> yeah, I wish I wish it was a database or an API where I could just pull. But no, um, it was a hundred percent manual. So I literally scorched the internet. I find I found like blog posts here and there, and like I said, there was no one resource for this, right? So I was creating, you know, this this first thing, and so I had to find all these books by, one by one. And when I was doing that, I honestly I put it into a word document, so I didn't even know. Oh my gosh! You know, th- this is yeah, this is like when I was first learning, so I didn't know, you know, at the time like what database to put it in or anything. So I would find the books and I would put all the info in a Word document. And then eventually um, I found Parse, um, RIP, because Parse is no longer (laughs) existing. But um, I found Parse and then I took those books from the Word document and then manually inputted them in Parse. Man. So is that all like uh, built into the app then? Or is that hitting some sort of service? Um, It's so all of the um, all the books um, are still in a um part well right now they're in mongodb they were, when i first did it they were in a parse and then i used the parse sdk to then pull those books from the database and then now um after parse was shut down the all the data is in mongodb and then i have a heroku uh, service running the parse server there nice and so um Leading up to when you're releasing this, this was just a like side project thing. You weren't planning on trying to make a business or do anything with that, right? Yeah, no, I never planned to make a business or make money from Ruby 2 because to me, it, it's a labor of love and it's also a, a free resource that I felt is very important to keep it free because of its, because of the intention and the mission behind it, where the purpose of it is to help folks 
find, you know, diverse stories written by, you know, various authors of color where the main characters are also people of color and so that they could expose young people to this type, uh, to this type of literature, you know? And I felt that it's important for that to be free so that teachers can use it, librarians can use it, parents can use it, and there's no kind of barrier to, to getting access to it. And it, I mean, by all accounts, it seems to have been succeeding uh, a lot in that uh, realm. It's gotten quite a lot of attention, it seems like. Was that something that you uh, spent time sort of marketing and curating, or did that all just happen really organically? It happened organically. I, <laughs> To be completely honest, when I launched it, I thought maybe like five people would use the app. <laughs> <laughs> um, I never envisioned that, like, you know, years later it would have over a hundred thousand, you know, downloads. I never envisioned that. It, the, it was very organic. I, the only kind of marketing I did, um, I created a Twitter, uh, page for it and a, a Facebook page and I, would have conversations with librarians on Twitter and writers and authors and just let them know the app was there. But I didn't do like any paid marketing or anything until I did some paid marketing years later, but not even that much. And so it was a, it was very organic kind of the growth and the press that came out about it. So how do you think that happened? Like whenever you launched, did it kind of take off really quickly or was this sort of a slow build? It was definitely not a super quick thing. It was I think it was more of a slow build, but um, there were definitely certain pivotal points that really did a spike for it. So when I when I first launched, I think a month or so after our launch, um, there was an article in BT News, um, a, a writer named uh, Patricia. You know, she was amazing. She wrote this um, piece uh, about this, you know, we were to this new app and that really kind of spiked up downloads um, for a bit. And then in 2015, I was featured on the Black Girls Rock Awards and that really spiked it up. And then, you know, there was all these kind of, you know, pivotal things featured. And then 2018 being featured in the app store, that spiked it up. So I think it was definitely a slow build, but there were times where it was huge spikes because of um, being really fortunate and being able to be highlighted in these different um, media outlets and avenues. Yeah. One thing I am really curious about is that being featured in the App Store. So like you have one of those uh, app developer stories, right? That's in the App Store. Yeah. What was what was that whole process like? Because they, I mean, it, it seems like they sent a photographer and got pictures and sort of wrote up a piece on you. Yeah, it was a really incredible experience, honestly. They uh, reached out and they were interested in doing this piece and they came to my apartment to do the photo shoot. They brought, you know, all the lighting and the, the oh, backdrop man. and stuff. It was really cool. Um, and they did the, the photo photography in my apartment and then the interview um, was with this great writer and she really, you know, took the time to really get to know me and my story. Um, and it was an incredible experience because you could see the amount of care that goes into kind of curating these type of developer stories. And so it was a really wonderful experience. And being featured in the App Store, I think, is kind of, especially for indie developers, is like a dream, you know? And so yeah, yeah. For, for me to be featured was just a dream come true. Well, and it's, it's one of those things, too, where... Yeah, it's a story that's really inspiring because it's not like a runaway business success story. Like you had a goal and a mission to help people out a certain way and you're doing exactly that. And that feels like that 
kind of fits in with this sort of ethos of Apple that, you know, maybe sometimes we forget how capitalistic uh, a lot of the stuff that we're yeah. doing is. And so I think that it's just like a feel good story for everybody involved to be like, yeah, that's right. We can do like things that are helpful for others as well. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I think that there's completely a balance. You know, I, I'm so grateful to, to be able to have We Read 2 and have to have launched that and it'd be so kind of mission driven and inspiring. Um, and I think it's also great when, you know, people launch apps that are make them, you know, a lot of money or success. And, you know, there's also inspirational stories behind that. I remember hearing about a 17 year old kid who was able to buy his parents a house or something from, from a successful app. So it's like, I love, you know, hearing stories on both sides of the spectrum. So uh, one thing that kind of goes with your mission too, that uh, again, a lot of us iOS developers, I think forget is that there's a huge portion of the population that uh, does not have an iOS device. Yeah. And that would be <laughs> Android at this point. And so yep. you went through a process to get an Android version of We Read 2 created, right? Yeah, I did. I actually did an Indiegogo campaign uh, to raise money so that I can hire um, a, you know, a professional Android developer to make the Android version of the app. Because I, I thought about doing it myself for a while, but to be honest, I love iOS so much, and I I didn't I, I really didn't want to go deep into Android. I, I think I'm interested in, in learning it maybe for fun, but I didn't want to go so deep that I, you know, had to create the Riri 2 version. And I really wanted to be well done. And so I was able to raise funds through that Indiegogo campaign to be able to hire this great um Android developer, Julia uh Julie Nguyen. And that was such a good experience and being able to work with her to get the Android version out. And people kept asking for the Android version. I mean, uh, the Android version came out in October 2017. And people, since the iOS version came out, you know, people were asking for the Android version. I think that happens a lot with indie apps. Oh, yeah. Um, and so sometimes it's really hard because it's like, well, I'm one person and I'm an iOS developer. <laughs> um, so it was really great to be able to get the Android version out there. And what was that like, uh, kind of letting somebody else build out a thing that's so attached to you? It definitely was, it was kind of hard at points, but, um, luckily she was so incredible and we worked very closely and she matched. I also hired a designer around the same time and being able to work with the designer, um, Lisa and Julia at the same time and be able to really just curate a consistent kind of experience between the two apps. So they both, um, you know, look the same and you're not getting like a great experience on iOS and a not so great one on Android. Right. So I right. really wanted to be, um, consistent and a good experience across the board. And so working with that, both of them was really great in doing that. Once the Android version came out, did that kind of build up another like bubble of press that sort of capital uh, uh, pushed up downloads on both sides? Or did that really make much of a press impact or anything like that? Honestly, no. Um, the Android version didn't make that much of a press impact. And I think the Android version still lags behind when it comes to downloads. Um, oh, I think that happens for, for a, a lot of apps in general. Um, so iOS has, you know, I think over 100,000 downloads and then Android has, I think, close to 10,000, right? So that's like 10x difference yeah. between the two. Yeah. I mean, it has some years on it, but that's interesting because I would have thought that 
a free app. Like usually the the complaint that uh, developers have with Android is that it's harder to make money. Like people won't pay for apps there. So you have to kind of use, you know, marketing interesting tactics to try and get money out of people. Um, but for a totally free app, I would have thought that the Android version would have sort of taken off since it's such a bigger user base. Yeah, exactly. I would have thought the same. And like I said, I don't do an incredible amount of marketing and stuff like that. So it could be that. And because um, the App Store feature really catapulted a yeah, lot of that's downloads. True. Yeah, so I don't have like a Google uh, Play Store feature. So you, maybe that would catapult Android downloads. But yeah, Android actually lags pretty far behind. Yeah, I wonder if that's like, if that's a whole thing is, you know, in the iOS like sort of press world, uh, we kind of know all the the players and there's a whole big like press arm kind of a bunch of sites dedicated to that it doesn't seem like or at least i'm ignorant of if there is a uh android version of that it doesn't seem like there's the same fervor and um excitement that you can generate just through good press on the android side of things I agree. I agree. I haven't seen that. And again, I'm not like totally in that community, so I can't speak for it, but I haven't seen that as well. I feel like there's a very strong cohort of indie iOS developers, uh, and I haven't really seen that as much for Android or apps that are Android only or, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's it probably has its own whole set of uh, strategies around it that we're just less aware of. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, so moving on from we read too, there's a whole bunch of other stuff you do. And to be honest, uh, I think there's way more stuff that you do than I even realize. So uh, <laughs> feel free to bring something else up if you want. But the, the kind of two big ones that I see all the time are you are kind of a prolific conference speaker at this point. You've done a lot of conference speaking, it seems like. And I know me personally, that's something that I'm kind of interested in dipping my toes in at some point in the future. So I'm really curious, like, how you got started doing that? Yeah. Um, so I, public speaking is actually something that uh, comes a bit natural to me because I grew up doing theater and performance arts. Okay. And so, yeah. And so when I was younger, I, you know, I did a lot of performance. And so being on stage is, is not something that is completely foreign to me. Um, and I started public speaking actually back when I was in high school. I think the largest public speaking thing I did in high school is I spoke um, after the mayor um, for it was like an Earth Day, I think it was. And um, I was like one I was in an environmental club. And so I was speaking as a student and I had to give a speech then. And then once I was in college, I just started doing more public speaking. And once Riri 2 came out, I did a lot of public speaking around my kind of my journey in creating Riri 2 and my journey into getting into tech. What was completely new to me and actually very challenging was when I started to do technical public speaking. And so I started, I did my first like technical, like very technical public speaking talk like two years ago. And that was the first time where I was, you know, you have to talk through code and yeah. really explain these technical concepts. And that was very different than all of the public speaking that I had done before. So even though I had kind of a large array of public speaking experience, technical public speaking is a whole new arena. Um, and so I find the technical public speaking is the most challenging, but it's very rewarding to me because um, being able to kind of condense sometimes very dense um, borderline boring material and be able to make it exciting and fun and make 
people actually understand what you're talking about and learn a new topic is really fulfilling. And so I really love doing it. Um, and the last two years, I've been able to really kind of get into the more technical side of public speaking and speak around the world. And it's been an incredible experience. And when I first started out, a lot of it was like me just applying and putting, you know, CFPs and putting proposals out there to all the different conferences and just seeing, you know, if I would be accepted. And once you, the thing with the public speaking and the conference circuit is once you start getting yourself out there, is you, you put your proposals in and you get a proposal accepted. Um, eventually as you go, you know, then conferences will ask you, Hey, we, you know, we enjoyed your talks at such and such. We'd love to you to give it at this conference. And so that's really been the experience over the last couple of years. And how do you, how do you choose like what sort of topics do you just kind of pick the things that you're really interested in at the time, or you already feel like an expert at and just submit them to a whole bunch of different places and see what sort of seems to stick. It, it's a mixture. So, um, I think there's, there are definitely some times where I'll give a, I'll give a talk on something I feel kind of like, oh, yeah, I feel like I got this down. I don't know necessarily if it's like expertise, but I feel like, you know, very comfortable with this. And there are other times where I'll give a talk on something where I'm like, you know, this is something that, you know, I enjoy working on, but I, I want to dive deeper for myself and then do through diving deeper for myself. You come up with a talk where because you've learned it, right, you're kind of sharing that learning experience with the audience and helping them kind of discover that same material. And so it's like figuring out um, kind of which talks really motivate you and inspire you. And then there's the other side of giving talks where I'll give a talk, talk on a topic I feel like is very important. I really want the tech community to make sure that they're understanding and knowing it, like accessibility. That's a topic I'm very passionate about. And so I'll give talks on that because I, I want, you know, the tech community to understand the importance of it. And so it's kind of figuring out the type of conference it is and what type of talk will work best and then trying to get it out there. Yeah, you just did that talk on inclusive and accessible app development uh, at, was it at Hacking? No, what was that conference? It was... UIConf. UIConf, that's right. And uh, that was the first time I'd heard, like, you had an internship at Apple at some point, right? Yeah, I did, yep. Some years ago. And that was on the accessibility team? On the accessibility team. That must have been incredibly eye-opening experience. Yes, it really was. That that whole experience really changed how I thought about engineering. Because even when I developed We Read 2, when I was first developing it, I was just really thinking about myself, to be honest. I was like, okay, how would I use this app? Um, and what would I want in this app? And when I'm testing it, how you know what buttons would I press? How would I navigate it? Um, and I was thinking about my experience. And, and that's kind of, I was first learning app development, right? And so that's how I was thinking about it. But when, when I did that app internship, it really opened up my eyes because it, the stuff that I was working on didn't have anything to do with my life experience or how I interact with technology. And it had everything to do with people who interact with it completely different than I do. Um, and, so it really split my perspective about, you know, engineering and user experience and usability and design and everything and how you think about something. And when you're working on something, don't think about how you would use it. Um, think about the vast, the vast amount of users who would use it and the diversity of their life experiences. I'm curious, like, if you have any tips on how to 
design. I don't want to just focus on app development, uh, but like sort of the ideas of designing for uh, a group of people that you don't really understand at all. Because like I know whenever I was working on Dark Noise, uh, I wanted to make it accessible because that's, you know, the cool right thing to do. But all I really had to go on was uh, reading through Apple's developer guidelines. And I think at one point I got a follower on Twitter who like their bio said that they were a blind uh, like tech user or something. And I was like, Oh my gosh. And I sent them, you know, a DM I was like, Hey, can you check this out? And they gave me a whole bunch of pointers. But other than that, I wasn't really sure where to go. Cause I don't, you know, whenever you were at Apple, I assume you have access to a lot more like people that you can talk yeah. to, but just yeah. as a small developer or creator or um, any sort of creative person, like how do you, how do you try to understand somebody's life experience? That's very different than yours and design something around that. It's very hard. I'm not going to, you know, sugarcoat it. It's very hard and it's not something that's easy and it's something that can be easily messed up because, you know, when you try to step into someone's shoes, it just doesn't work. <laughs> you can't do that. Yeah. Um, and so the best thing to do, honestly, uh, is, you know, obviously you read documentation and, and you, you know, watch videos and resources on how best to interact with, you know, these accessible technologies. But the best thing to do is similar to kind of what, what you said is reach out to the community. So if you have a community of folks who you really want to know what their experience is like using your technology or the design of your technology, you got to reach out to that community. Um, and, it's also being very thoughtful. So if you do, if you want to do like a survey or you want them to do test flight or something like that, sometimes you do have to compensate folks for their time. So being very thoughtful about, you know, how you reach out to folks, um, and making sure that their time is, is valued and appreciated. But yeah, I think the best thing to do is to reach out to folks and to get it in their hands or to, you know, chat with somebody who is an expert in accessibility or an expert in whatever kind of thing that you're thinking about when you're trying to get feedback on your user experience and uh, usability. And that's the best way to go about it because that's when I learned the most. Um, when I was actually working on something and getting feedback from folks who it's the experience was very different than mine. And I needed that feedback. And, and that's when I got the most value. And like, I know whenever I hear talk about this all the time, I'm pretty much immediately mapping in my head. Um, like a blind person or a deaf person, because that's when I think accessibility, that's exactly what I'm thinking of because on technical terms, that's usually what we mean in iOS development. Mm -hmm. But one of the things you kind of touched on in your talk that I thought was really interesting was the idea that like, it's not just it's, it's people who've had a different experience that, or have a different experience than you in any way. Yeah. So if you're working on something voice related, somebody who their native language is in English or, you know, yeah. in my case, uh, I make a white noise app. And so I have not really thought about people with hearing uh, disabilities yeah. or different hearing things because in my head, yeah. it's like, oh, if you're deaf, you don't care. But there's a mm. whole array of other hearing related things that I'm, as we're talking, realizing that I haven't even like thought about at all. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's that's the crux of it. I think we think about when we think about, you know, accessibility and we oftentimes pigeonhole it into this one thing. But it can, it, it's a right away of, of experiences and varying levels of ability, whether it's physical, mental, 
you know, whatever the, the, the spectrum is and people have all different types of life experiences. And so really thinking about the diverse array of experiences and making sure that your, your technology, I think the thing is like making sure that your, whatever, if it's, if you're making this app, making sure that your app is number one usable. Right. Like you want to make sure that folks can use the app um, regardless of whatever their ability is. And then number two, making sure that that's not a crappy experience. So even though they can use it, is it actually enjoyable to use it? Um, like, would you want to use it in the same way they have to use it? Um I think that's th- those are the two things to really think about, because, you know, we often think about these as long as it works, like, oh, it kind of works. It's fine. But think about, would you want to use that every day? Like, if, if you have an app that you expect people to use every day, would you want to use it every day if you had to use it in that experience? Yeah, I think that's the one that's really hard to do without actually talking to people that have that experience. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think even what you were saying, you know, for, for Dark Noise, right? You Even though it's an audio experience, there are so many cool things like Apple just came out with with iOS 13 for haptic feedback, right? And you can play with haptic feedback. Um, so folks who maybe not be able to actually hear all the sounds completely could still have a, some type of cool experience, Whoa. right? If you wanted to do something custom <laughs> for that. <laughs> I didn't just think of that. Just shooting ideas. Yeah, yeah, just shooting ideas out there. You never know. Man, uh, where do I where do I uh, send my uh, check for that uh, free, free <laughs> consulting advice? <laughs> um, so another thing uh, that I want to talk about is you've been doing a whole lot of writing as well. Like I've seen that you've written at like TechCrunch and you just started a uh, like, is that a monthly column at Alpha, like interviewing technical women in engineering? Yeah, it's not a consistently scheduled column, but yeah, there will be some interviews here and there um, featuring and highlighting different awesome women in tech. Yeah, writing is definitely something I really enjoy. My father's actually a professional writer. And so I learned, I've learned a, a oh, lot man. from him. Yeah. And it's, it's something that's fulfilling and it's very different than coding, right? But I think it's important to kind of be well-rounded in that aspect and writing is such an important form of communication. So I feel like even as, you know, engineers and developers, we should really hone in those writing skills. But yeah, I, I definitely hope in the new year to do some more writing on that aspect. And there are some cool things coming down the pipeline I'm excited to announce. So you'll see more writing definitely for me coming coming soon. Yeah. And like, I don't know if this really qualifies as writing, but I feel like it's almost harder uh, than a traditional long column. But you did that um, kind of little tweet storm because you got an early <laughs> review unit of uh, the 16-inch MacBook Pro. And yeah. you you somehow distilled like all of the things that were important to me into what, like, I don't know, six or seven tweets. And I feel like you <laughs> really, really concisely gave a really good, accurate review, like from a developer's perspective, how, uh, how that machine is going to sort of change things relative to what was there before. What was, what was that like? Yeah, I mean, it was really fun. So, I mean, tweet, tweet storms or tweet threads are actually something I've been, I've been doing for a long time. And so it's, it's kind of like a skill that you just hone. Um, I really enjoy doing like live threads when it, like at conferences and stuff like that. And kind of you have to learn how to distill a lot of information in, in a short yeah. <laughs> amount of time. And so I think if you've been on Twitter for a long time, you know, it's just something that you get used to. Uh, and doing the, uh, being able to review the Mac was, was an awesome 
awesome experience and I really wanted to focus in on the things I knew were important to like us developers. And so making sure I kind of distilled all that information in short bursts so that people can kind of just see, cause you know, people have the same questions over and over. And so be able right. to just direct, direct them to this thread. Like, here you go. Like, just check it out. I'm sure the answer is there, you know? <laughs> yeah. I like multiple people would ask me a question or like conjecture about something. And there was multiple pictures that you included, just like showing it next to another, uh, an older model or something like that, where you could quickly sort of, uh, grab the information that you were actually looking for. It was it was really kind of a cool way of doing that. What made you choose to do it as a tweet thread versus, I mean, eventually you did write up an article, but kind of your launch was that tweet thread. Yeah. I mean, I, Twitter is kind of one of my main venues for, you know, communicating with like other developers and just talking to people in the internet world and community. And so I felt like it was important to start off there and, try to be be able to get that information out there. I, I personally love Twitter. Yes, it definitely ha- <clears throat> has its problems, for sure has its problems. But I personally love Twitter and I, I love having conversations on there. So I really wanted to kick the conversation off. You know, it was the first, you know, day of the launch. It was early morning. I was like, let me get it out here. I wanted to be a part of those early conversations so people know what the experience is like and they can ask me questions. And I just, I think Twitter is a, a place where it's really easy to start up conversations conversations and and discussion and so i really wanted to start it off there yeah that has definitely been my experience uh so far with twitter and specifically the ios community on twitter has been super welcoming and super helpful and speaking of that one of the things that i want to like ask everybody that comes on the show is for like a person or app or some sort of uh north star uh example out there that has been like a big inspiration for you and who you'd recommend other people check out yes for sure so um i would recommend an ios developer that inspires me and has inspired me for a long time is camila taylor and Camila was um, a longtime iOS engineer at LinkedIn and she was one of the folks who spearheaded kind of a redesign and um kind of revamp of the whole app and converting it to Swift and everything. And now she works over at at Gusto and she's just an incredible um, person, a developer. She also does conference speaking and conference talks. And she was definitely a mentor and inspiration to me um, in in my iOS development journey. And so I would definitely check Camila out. If you can check her out on Twitter, she's at Camila, K-A-M-I-L-A-H. Awesome. Thank you. I will definitely check her out. Yeah. So I think I think that pretty much wraps it up. Unless there's something else that you'd like to talk about. Uh, I think we covered it all. This <laughs> has been this has been great, Charlie. Awesome. So where can people find you or the stuff that you're working on? Yeah. So people can find me, like I said, on Twitter. <laughs> I'm at kthomas901, and you can also find me on my website, kayathomas.info. Um, I have a blog on there. I'm not a very consistent blog person. I don't, I don't write posts that often, but you can find all of my speaking info, which, what are the next conferences I'll be speaking at um, in the upcoming years, any, you know, articles that I write on the blog or other sites are all on my website there as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kaya, for coming on the show. Uh, it really means a lot for somebody who's like so well-respected to be willing to come and uh, talk to me. So I really appreciate it. Now this has been uh, this has been great, Charlie. I'm excited to see the rest of the um, episodes, and I know this is going to be an awesome podcast. 
Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please go to Apple Podcasts right now and give us a rating and review. Or if you use a different podcast player, hit the star button in Overcast or give a rating in Breaker or Stitcher or honestly, whatever it is that you use. Uh, Especially this week, I'm trying to make as much noise as possible to launch the show and maybe get a little bit of attention going towards the show. And if you'd like to discuss the episode, you can find me on Twitter at underscore Chucky C, or you can tweet the show at Launched FM. And we have a dedicated subreddit called Launched FM, where you can discuss the show with me, other listeners, and maybe sometimes our guests will join us there too. For show notes, contact form, or to apply to come on the show, if you have a big launch in the future, go to launchedfm.com.